Please rise for the reading of today's New Testament lesson from the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door, and he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves, and he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and take your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you so much, Andy Claybrook, for leading our lesson, for reading our lesson for us this morning. Thank you, Shelby, for that marvelous prayer, for leading us into the presence of God and to toy. Uh, Thank you both to all of our musicians and of course always our AV and production team and to all of you who are here either uh, virtually on stream or those of you who are in person. Uh, I wanna bring you up to date with where we are today. We're beginning a new series this morning uh, called Powerful and it is a part of a section of a year-long focus that we're doing together called Walking with Jesus. This is a discipleship focus in which we're centering our thoughts on the synoptic gospels. We're gonna be walking with Jesus for an entire year through Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we just completed a series from Luke called The Prayer Life of Jesus, Teach Us to Pray. And we centered our thoughts on Luke because Luke more than any other narrative accents the prayer life of Jesus. And today we begin with this reading from Mark, and we're going to spend about six weeks together in Mark's gospel because Mark, more than any other gospel, tends to emphasize the power of Jesus, the urgency of the gospel. In fact, the word immediately is used no less than 40 times in 16 chapters in Mark's gospel. And so the emphasis is on the power of Jesus. For the next six weeks, we're going to look at very specific scenes from the first written recorded gospel, the gospel of Mark, that highlight the authority of God in the person and presence of Jesus. Now, I don't have to tell you, if you know Mark's gospel, that it was evident early on in the life of Jesus, this power. In fact, Mark chapter 1 verse 22 details the response of the synagogue folk in Capernaum where Jesus made his home. Listen to what they said. They were astounded at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority 
and not as the scribes. Now, is it just me or did Mark just take a rather not so subtle swipe at the scribes? I think he did. Who were the scribes? Thanks for asking. They were religious professionals. The scribes were doctors of the law or keepers, guardians of Jewish tradition, some of whom would eventually become the principal antagonists against Jesus. What you need to know is that the scribes and Pharisees had positional authority, but they seemed to lack personal authority. In other words, I don't know if you know this or not, but just because you have a title doesn't mean you have influence. Just because I have an office doesn't necessarily mean I have authority. Just because you have a reverend in front of your name doesn't necessarily mean that you're powerful. In fact, I've discovered today in the 21st century that having that reverend before your name is more a term of suspicion than it is a term of endearment. It's interesting to me that this word authority that we have underlined in the Greek is the word exousia. Let me tell you what that means. The word exousia means the power to act. And I suggest to you that what made Jesus' teaching so effective was not just what he said, but what he did. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but sometimes religious people like me, clergy people like me, are better at giving edicts than we are at action. We're sometimes better in the church at proclaiming the gospel rather than practicing the gospel, and we need both. We need word and deed. We need heart and hand. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus got onto the relig religious establishment about in Matthew 23. Listen to this scathing criticism, and you'll understand why they wanted to put him onto a cross. Jesus said, Matthew 23, the scribes and Pharisees, or the religious professionals, sit in Moses' seat, authority. So you must obey them and do what they tell you to do, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. What an indictment. They had the position without the exousia. They had the authority without the power to act. I was taking a walk in Radnor Park the other day. Have, have I ever mentioned Radnor to any of you? I think you've heard me talk about Radnor. That's the original sanctuary to me, and I love to go out and, and think and pray and just, just be with God in that, uh, on that trail. And I was walking the other day when I noticed a little boy who I judged to be about six or seven who was walking alone on the path, and I thought that's rather odd. And I realized what had happened. This six or seven-year-old boy had gotten a little bit ahead of his mother and sister, and I could hear his mother yelling for him to slow down and wait for them. And I particularly heard her say to him, you don't know where you're going. To which the little boy said, I know where I'm going. I know everything. And when he said that last line, he looked right at me, and I said, everything? 
And suddenly he stopped, his face went from confidence to concern, and he said almost in a whisper at the corner of his mouth, maybe I better slow down. And I said, he'd gotten a little too big for his britches, and he knew it. And it happens, doesn't it? Someone asked me the other day in a conversation about a very difficult theological question. Uh, They asked me what I thought, to which I honestly replied, I don't know. And he said, I thought you preachers pretty much knew everything. And I said, no, I'm not young enough to know everything. But the question is not, what do you know? The question is, What do you know that you can practice? The question is, what is it about what I know that can impact the world in what I do? Jesus had authority, exousia. He had no position, but my the power. He had just come home to Capernaum. He had been busy preaching, teaching, cleansing, healing all over Galilee to the point that Mark says in chapter one, he could no longer go openly into any town without drawing a crowd. And so he comes back home to Capernaum. It's a strategic location. It's a fishing village. It's located right off the main section of the Via Ignatia, which is the Roman road. It's a strategic place for the witness of the gospel. And he comes home to Simon Peter's house. It's interesting that Jesus never had his own home, but he bunked with Simon Peter, and Simon Peter's home became headquarters for the gospel movement. And when he got home, again, as you can predict, a crowd assembled to hear his teaching. It was standing room only, and what happened that day was powerful. It was powerful not simply because of what he said, It's interesting, Mark doesn't spell out the content of his teaching, just the impact of his teaching. So it wasn't just what he said, it's what he did. There was a man who was disabled. He'd lost the use of his legs, physically challenged. He'd lost his mobility, and with it, he had lost his ability to work, to be employed, to provide for himself and his family. The orthopedics in town had done everything they knew to do to no avail, and yet, though he was poor in health, he was rich in friends. He had four friends. Mark remembers the exact number. They were probably members of the same synagogue. Maybe they were in the same small men's group, and they'd heard about Jesus. They didn't know much, but they'd heard enough to know that maybe, just maybe, this rabbi could help their friend. In fact, they got into a conversation. If we can just just get him to Jesus, they said, maybe he can help. When they got to Peter's place, it was jam-packed. There was absolutely no way to get inside. In fact, the door was a bottleneck. It was like rush hour. It was camel to camel outside. But these guys were not easily dissuaded. They were similar in personality to some of you. In fact, I think they had a Williamson County tag on the back of their plate. They were eights on the Enneagram. They like a challenge 
And if they don't find one, they'll create one. They were from Brentwood. They were the types who would rather ask forgiveness than ask permission. And so they made their way where there was no way. Mark says they got up on top of the house, they climbed up on the roof, and they pawed through the mud and thatch, and with ropes on four corners, they lowered their friend on his pallet to Jesus. Now, this is not in the scripture. This is the revised chapel version, but you know this is what happened. Mrs. Simon looks up at her new skylight and thinks to herself, Lord, we've already given up our boats and nets. There goes the house. But I'm not sure anybody stopped to think that the biggest risk of all was to those four friends trying to balance themselves on that shaky roof, on those slats. They risk bodily harm and injury to themselves. They might have fallen through and wound up on a pallet just like the man they were carrying. But love takes a chance. They rolled the dice. They took a risk. I think about that because it's one of the core values of Brentwood United Methodist Church. That of our five core values that we say are so critical to us, Christ-centered, priesthood of all believers, to remain teachable, primacy of scripture, centrality of grace, that we are risk takers. That we are willing to risk ourselves for love's sake, for the benefit of somebody else to make a way where there's no way. Now we live in a culture where we are so risk averse. We have insurance for every possible loss. But I wanna ask you this morning, who are you taking a risk for? Not what, but who? Who am I willing to risk for, for love's sake, to roll the dice for Christ's sake? Now, I love the next part of this story, verse 5. Listen to this. When Jesus saw their faith, he acted. Whose faith? Their faith. It's plural. The pronoun's plural. That's very important. It's not his faith. It would be singular, right? It's their faith. Who? Whose faith? The friends. The fellowship. His small group. His community. One of our men recently in this church received a, a very troubling diagnosis. I prayed with him a couple of weeks ago. He told me this story. He said, within a few days of that diagnosis, uh, my Sunday school class invited me over on a Sunday afternoon. And there in the front yard in lawn chairs with me kneeling, that whole Sunday school class surrounded me and my family and they placed me in the presence of Jesus. He said, I felt as though I were lifted on air. Now, I know this man, and I know him to be a man of great faith, but he would tell you today it was their faith that cut through the clouds. It was their faith that made a way where there was no way. That's why we intercede for people like Rick and others on our prayer list. We're joining Jesus. We're making a way where there is no way. We're cutting 
through the roof in order to place our friends into the presence of Jesus. That's the power of community. And whether there's a hundred here or whether there's a thousand who are streaming, that's the power of community. Jesus said it doesn't take many where two or three are gathered in my name. I'll be there too. And here there are four in this story. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, what did he say? My son, your sins are forgiven. Now, now let's just be honest for a minute. I imagine that that group was a little disappointed by what Jesus said at first because they're probably thinking, Jesus, can't you see what's going on here? It's not forgiveness he needs, it's feet. It's not mercy, it's, it's mobility. But Jesus can see what we cannot see. And apparently there's a condition that's more lethal than physical paralysis, and that's spiritual paralysis. I mean, like Paul, you can learn to live, right, with a thorn in your flesh, but you cannot endure with a thorn in your soul. And until we learn to deal with the sin problem, I tell you, the rest is just window dressing. Until we deal with the soul problem, my son, your sins are forgiven. When Methodism was still a movement in the 18th century, Mr. Wesley had specific rules for his pastors, one of which was this. He would say to them, you have nothing to do but save souls. Therefore, spend all of your time and be spent in this work and go always not only to those who want you, but go to those who need you most. And this man needed Jesus most. My son, your sins are forgiven. Now, while the friends might have been a little disappointed, I can assure you that the religious professionals were outraged at what they heard. They were irate, and Jesus knew it. Of course, they didn't say it to his face, but he knew it. Just as he perceived the faith of those friends, he can also perceive the lack of faith in the scribes. And Mark tunes us in for a moment so that we can hear what they're thinking. And here's what they were thinking. Who does this man think he is? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Why, it's blasphemy. It's sacrilege. It's slander. And, of course, we know that this was a capital crime punishable by death. It's interesting, if you go back and read this section in Mark, chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 6, you will discover a theme. The theme is Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders. It's like everything that Jesus was doing now is under the microscope. It's under scrutiny. He's forgiving sin. He's eating with sinners and tax collectors. He doesn't fast like others. He's plucking grain and healing on the Sabbath and on and on and on and on. The criticism. And I may be wrong, but I, I think there's a paradox here. And, and here it is. This is irony. The religious leaders who actually have positional authority, 
They don't lift a finger to help this paralytic. But Jesus, who has no position, no office, no title, takes authority to redeem this man, body and soul. While the professionals are fussing over the way Jesus is doing it, Jesus is just doing it to the glory of God. And here's the clincher. Jesus then turns to the scribes, knowing what they're thinking, and says, why are you so cynical? Why so critical? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, stand up, take your mat, and walk. And then he said, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority, exosia, to forgive sins, he turns to the paralytic, to the paralytic and he says, look, I say to you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he did. <laughs> and they were all amazed. And they glorified God saying, we have never, we've never seen anything like this. I think sometimes, even in the church, we, we lose the capacity to be amazed. I heard somebody say the other day, I, I overheard, oh, nothing surprises me anymore. I think we lose the capacity to be awed by God and sometimes, this is me, we get so obsessed with the problem that we lose sight of the power. And these guys, they didn't have a lot of faith. They had a little faith, enough to risk to bring a hopeless cause to Jesus and to trust him with the outcome. You have a friend like that? Anybody got any friends like that? Here's a more important question. Is there anyone who would say that you're a friend like that? That's an important question. Several years ago, doctors diagnosed Pastor Ed Dobson. Reverend Ed Dobson, pastor of a wonderful church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, was diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's, incurable, fatal. The doctors gave him two years. They predicted that he would spend the balance of those years uh, in a disabled condition. And shortly after his diagnosis, this pastor wanted somebody to pray for him, to anoint him with oil, pray for healing. He wanted somebody who believed in healing to do that. And so he had a Pentecostal friend who had regular healing services. He asked him to come over and to pray with him. He said it was one of the most important nights of my life. He said, my pastor friend began the service by telling stories of people that he had prayed for who had been healed. And then he told us some stories of people he had prayed for who had not been healed, who had passed away, receiving what he called the ultimate and final healing. But before he laid hands on Ed and prayed for him, he gave him some advice that Ed said, I will never forget. He said, Ed, don't become obsessed with getting healed. If you get obsessed merely with physical healing, you may lose your focus 
And then he said this, get lost in the wonder of God and who knows what he will do for you. He lived 15 years and he said this was the best advice he had ever received. And his friends said when he died, Ed stayed lost all of his life in the wonder of God because one brother made a way. Walter Brueggemann, with this I close, Walter Brueggemann, who is an Old Testament scholar, Columbia, for many years, Columbia Seminary in Decatur, Georgia, wrote a free verse poem about the power of God. It's called, And Then You. I want to share it in closing. We arrange our lives as best we can to keep our holiness at bay with our pieties, our doctrines, our liturgies, our moralities, our secret ideologies, safe, virtuous, settled, and then you. You and your dreams, you and your visions, you and your purposes, you and your commands, you and your neighbors. We find your holiness at bay, but probing, pervading, insisting, demanding, and we yield, sometimes gladly, sometimes resentfully, sometimes late, sometimes soon. We yield because you, beyond us, you, above us, you are our God. And we are your creatures who are met by your holiness. By your holiness, we are made our true selves and we yield to you, you, our true authority. Exosia, the power to act. Christ in you is powerful and the result is astounding. And my prayer for me, for you, is that we may get lost and stay lost in the wonder of God so that Christ in you might make a way for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.